You're listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast, presented by Brian Dunn, Head of Matheson Employment Practice. This is a regular podcast series for HR practitioners, employment lawyers, and in-house counsel, focusing on the legal issues relevant to all companies with employees in Ireland. Hello and welcome. Today I want to look at a recent decision of the Irish Supreme Court. This is a judgment that was handed down on the 31st of July last. And it relates to a case that has actually been before the courts on five separate occasions at this point. And in fact, it's not over yet. As you'll see, the matter has been referred back to the Labour Court for a final resolution. It's the case of Marie Daly and Nano Nagel School, a case we actually looked at before in episode 32 of the podcast series. And in fact, today's case builds on what we've seen to date. The case deals with the fundamental question as to just how far an employer is required to go in providing reasonable accommodation to an employee with a disability in the workplace. This Court of Appeal decision is actually the fourth full hearing of this matter after a seven-year saga. Before I get into the facts of the case, let me quickly run through the relevant legislation because it's key to the actual case itself. The key provision here is Section 16 of the Employment Equality Act 1998 to 2015. And that's the bedrock of disability discrimination protection in Irish law. And what section 16 says is as follows. Nothing in this act shall be construed as requiring an employer to recruit or promote an individual to a position or to retain an individual in a position if the individual is not fully competent and available to undertake and fully capable of undertaking the duties attached to that position, having regard to the conditions under which those duties are or may be required to be performed. So to summarise what the law is saying is an employer cannot be required to employ somebody if that person's disability is such that they cannot perform the role. And that seems fair and reasonable. However, the very essence of disability discrimination is the uninformed assumption that simply because somebody has a disability, they cannot perform a particular role. And similarly, the failure on the part of employers to at least give some consideration to what steps could be taken to assist that employee to perform the role. So in this regard, Section 16 goes one step further. What it provides is as follows, that a person who has a disability is fully competent to undertake and fully capable of undertaking any duties if the person would be so fully competent and capable on reasonable accommodation being provided by the person's employer. So again, to paraphrase, what the law is doing here is, is assuming that somebody with a disability is equally competent and capable of performing that role if the employer could assist them in achieving that level with some form of reasonable accommodation. The obligation to provide this form of reasonable accommodation is not unlimited, in that the legislation states an employer shall take appropriate measures unless the measures would impose a disproportionate burden on the employer. In fleshing this out further and dealing with the concept of reasonable accommodation, the legislation talks about appropriate measures and it identifies appropriate measures as including effective and practical measures such as the adaptation of patterns of working or the distribution of tasks. And as you'll see, this became critical in this particular case. Let's get back now to the facts of the case. Miss Daly worked as a special needs assistant in the school and she had worked there since 1998. In 2010, she was involved in a very serious road traffic accident as a result of which she suffered significant physical injuries and was confined to a wheelchair. Over the course of 2011, she engaged with her employer in regard to her return to work. And as part of this process, the employer undertook an occupational health assessment. The purpose of this assessment was really to identify 
the extent of her disability following the accident and to what extent it would limit her ability to perform the role and the tasks that she was previously hired to perform. The report noted that there were 16 core elements to a special needs assistant role and that as a result of Miss Daly's injuries, she was now only capable of performing nine of those 16 elements. On that basis, the employer concluded that she was unfortunately no longer fully competent and capable of performing her role and so wouldn't be able to return to work. Miss Daly issued proceedings under the Employment Equality Act and brought the matter before the then Equality Tribunal. And her case was quite simple, that the employer had failed to provide reasonable accommodation as required under Section 16 to allow her or to facilitate her return to work. The employer defended this case on the basis that it had actually given due consideration to reasonable accommodation. For example, one of the proposals that Miss Daly had put forward was that a floating special needs assistant would be hired who would work with her to cover those aspects of the role that she couldn't perform. Rather than just reject this straight off, the employer actually inquired as to whether funding would be available to hire somebody on this basis and the funding simply wasn't there. So on this basis, the employer concluded that it simply couldn't provide reasonable accommodation to facilitate her return. The Equality Tribunal agreed with the employer. It found that the employer had given due consideration to the reasonable accommodation put forward. It involved a disproportionate burden and on that basis, the employer had met its obligations under Section 16 and so Miss Daly lost in her claim. Miss Daly then appealed the case to the Labour Court and that's where things became a little bit more complicated because the Labour Court actually found for Miss Daly and awarded her €40,000 in compensation on the basis that the employer had failed to provide reasonable accommodation. In particular, what the Labour Court found was that the failure by the employer to consider a redistribution of her duties, those particular aspects of her role that she could no longer perform amongst the remaining team of special needs assistants, So in effect, narrowing down her role to what she could do and allowing her colleagues carry the additional duties that she couldn't do, that the employer's failure to consider that as a form of reasonable accommodation was a failure and breach of their obligations under the legislation. In taking this position, the Labour Court was expressly rejecting the employer's position that Section 16 did not require the school to continue Miss Daly in her role if she was no longer capable of fully discharging the duties that she'd been hired to do pre the accident. The school in turn appealed the Labour Court decision and it went to the High Court, where Justice Noonan upheld the Labour Court decision and they awarded 40000 in compensation. He elaborated on the Labour Court logic as follows. And if we go back to the definition I read out from the Section 16 of the legislation, where it talked about appropriate measures including adapting the pattern of work and adapting the distribution of tasks, in the High Court, the judge held that the concept of adapting the distribution of tasks included going so far as to eliminate tasks as appropriate. So the High Court was suggesting that the employer should have been open to narrowing back the scale of her duties to those duties that she was still physically capable of performing. And the school, in failing to consider the redistribution of her tasks on this basis, had failed to provide reasonable accommodation and so lost the case. Now, the decision when it was handed down in the High Court caused quite a stir amongst employment lawyers because it did seem to be pushing the boundaries or parameters of the Section 16 obligation much further than any of us would have expected to be the case up to that point. So it was no surprise then in turn when the school appealed the decision once more and so we ended up before the Court of Appeal. And so it was at the end of this seven-year saga and four full hearings that the Court of Appeal actually found for the employer 
and overturned the Labour Court and the High Court decision and set aside the award of 40,000 in compensation, returning the position back to the original Equality Tribunal judgment. What the Court of Appeal said in two separate detailed and quite comprehensive judgments was as follows, that while Section 16 clearly does envisage some degree of adjustment as a means of reasonable accommodation, that does not necessarily involve removing all elements from the employee's role that they can't perform. In the court's view, while it was reasonable for an employee to expect the employer to review certain or non-essential elements of the role, it was wholly unreasonable to suggest that Section 16 required an employer to disregard the precisely essential elements of the role, or what one of the other judges referred to as the main duties or essential functions of the role. In the court's words, Section 16 requires full competence as to the essential elements of the role. And the scope of Section 16 is therefore a lot narrower than the Labour Court and the High Court had suggested in their judgments. Likewise, the court ruled that Section 16 certainly does not go so far as to require an employer to remove or redesign a function to such an extent that it is effectively creating a new role in order to accommodate an employee with a disability. And so on that basis, the court found it in the employer's favour and the decision was overturned. As you will have worked out by now, Miss Daly in turn appealed the Court of Appeal decision to the Supreme Court, where she succeeded. To look at this from the sideline, it's hard to say that there was any winner really in the Supreme Court decision, in absolute terms. All Miss Daly really won at the end of the day was the right to have her case heard once again by the Labour Court, now with the benefit of the Supreme Court's guidance and interpretation on the relevant section of the Employment Equality Act, and how the employer should have dealt with the issue of reasonable accommodation. The Supreme Court's logic in why it overturned the Court of Appeal decision was as follows. The Supreme Court found that there was no legal basis in Section 16 for any distinction between tasks and duties or essential duties and non-essential duties as outlined in that judgment. As the main premise of the Court of Appeal's decision was that the duty to provide reasonable accommodation did not go so far as to require an employer to remove the essential functions or the main duties, its judgment was therefore defective and wrong, and it overturned it on that basis. What the Supreme Court is saying in practical terms is, if that is what is required in a particular case, well then that is what Section 16 requires, subject to the limitations contained within the overall legislation, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Because the court did emphasise that it's not an unlimited obligation. What it said was as follows. This does not of course mean that the duty of accommodation is infinite, or at large. It cannot result in removing all the duties which a disabled person is unable to perform then, almost inevitably, it would become a disproportionate burden. If no real distinction can be made between tasks and duties, there is no reason, in principle, why certain work duties cannot be removed or stripped out. The court then went on to deal with the inevitable question of does the obligation go so far as to require an employer to create a new job for the employee? And the court rejected that idea. What it said on that point was, again, as follows. The test is one of reasonableness and proportionality, an employer cannot be under a duty entirely to redesignate or create a different job to facilitate an employee. It is therefore the duty of the deciding tribunal to decide in any given case whether what is required to allow a person employment is reasonable accommodation in the job or whether in reality what is sought is an entirely different job. Section 16.1 of the Act refers specifically to the position, not to an alternative and quite different position. In practical terms, what the court is saying is as follows. 
the obligation does require an employer to go so far as to materially reconfigure all existing duties of the job into something that may be very different so long as it remains within the confines of the original job. However, it doesn't go so far as to require the employer to invent or create an entirely new job for the employee. The judgment actually gives a detailed example of this. What it says in this regard is as follows. The duty of accommodation is not an open-ended one. There is no obligation to redefine the employment of an airline pilot as an airline steward or vice versa. The question is rather to consider whether the degree of redistribution or accommodation is such as to effectively create a different job entirely, which would almost inevitably impose a disproportionate burden on an employer. As I understand the example that the court is giving, what they are suggesting is that an airline could very well be required to redistribute an airline pilot's duties, such that the pilot is no longer required to undertake any flying duties. But if filling in paperwork pre and post a flight was originally part of the pilot's duties, well then the pilot may now dedicate all of his or her time to that particular task. But it doesn't require the airline to go so far as to re-employ the airline pilot as an airline steward, because that wasn't in any way part of their original role. Maybe it's not the clearest distinction in practice, but I think this is what the court is getting at. The key determining criteria in this will be whether or not the reasonable accommodation required gives rise to a disproportionate burden. The court then went on to deal with whether or not an employer in defining and considering reasonable accommodation is required to engage and consult with the employee. The court referred to a 2004 decision from the circuit court, Humphreys and Westwood Fitness Club, in which the court at that time said that any examination of reasonable accommodation by an employer is not adequate unless the employer engages with the employee and allows the employee the opportunity to participate in that process and put forward their own medical evidence or submissions. In practice, what that could mean is the employee is given the opportunity to see what the employer's medical advice is and to put forward their own medical opinion or perhaps alternatively, to put forward their own views on whether or not the reasonable accommodation will give rise to a disproportionate burden on the employer. It should ultimately still be the employer's final decision, but obviously the employer needs to behave and act reasonably in this. The Court of Appeal had rejected this suggestion and took the view that no consultation was required whatsoever. The Supreme Court disagreed and overturned this point. It's stated that even though failure to consult with an employee is not of itself necessarily discrimination and that while there was no mandatory obligation to consult with an employee in each and every case, it did nonetheless conclude that a wise employer would engage and consult with the employee. While the court did go out of its way to make it clear this was not an obligation, because the Supreme Court in its own judgment has made this point, I think we can take it as read that in practice it will be seen as an obligation to consult with employees. And then finally, almost as a by the by, the court mentioned that the obligation to inquire as to available public funding is a mandatory obligation. In the sense of running a business, you would imagine any responsible employer is always going to see what funding is out there. However, there could well be occasions where the employer chooses not to do so in order to support its own disproportionate burden argument if it doesn't want to provide a particular type of reasonable accommodation. This judgment will make it that bit harder on this point. And so in conclusion, the Supreme Court referred the case back to the Labour Court for the Labour Court to make its final decision. Thinking it through, 
I think Miss Daly probably will win once again at the Labour Court stage and the original award of compensation will be upheld. This is mainly because the employer won't have the opportunity to mend its hand and to go through the reasonable accommodation process again. The case is going to be decided on the facts as they were four or five years ago. However, with the benefit of the guidance from this decision, if the very same facts arose tomorrow, we could have a scenario where the school as the employer go through a process of identifying what reasonable accommodation needs to be provided to Miss Daly. They reconfigure the role substantially into something quite different from what it originally was in order to help her perform the requirements of the role. But if ultimately they can show that having inquired as to public funding, there was none available or it's insufficient to help them cover the cost of that reasonable accommodation, that it provides a disproportionate burden. And on that basis, at the end of that analysis, they would be lawfully entitled to terminate Miss Daly by reason of her disability. For those of you who regularly follow this podcast series, you'll know that at the end of each case review, I like to ask, what does this mean for you as advisors and representatives to employers in Ireland? And there are a couple of points we can clearly take from this case. When the Court of Appeal judgment came out last year, it was widely accepted as a very practical and reasonable interpretation of Section 16 by employers insofar as a narrower interpretation of the legislation. The Supreme Court judgment clearly broadens it. It's a much broader interpretation of the obligation to provide reasonable accommodation. However, to be objective about it, it is still to some degree practical and limited in that it's not just as broad as the original Labour Court decision or the High Court decision. Likewise, the point in consultation isn't all that groundbreaking. It's not that new really when you look at it. It's really just a logical extension of the original position from the then Employment Appeals Tribunal, and in particular a decision from 1990, Bulger and Sharings, which set out the process that an employer has to go through in consulting with an employee when proposing to dismiss them by reason of illness. Following the Supreme Court judgment, these are the steps that an employer must now follow in dealing with reasonable accommodation. Firstly, they'll have to identify the extent of reasonable accommodation that is required in any given case, and that will always require medical expert evidence. It's not something for an employer or indeed for an employee to propose themselves. Secondly, they'll then need to assess whether the proposed reasonable accommodation identified by the expert will give rise to a disproportionate burden. Part of that analysis is looking at the resources available to the particular employer and likewise considering what public funding may be available. Thirdly, the employer has to engage and consult with the employee throughout this process. Now that will be fact specific, but I suppose as case law develops, we'll get a sense of a minimum standard that employers are expected to follow. My main concern with this judgment, and it relates to the issue of disproportionate burden throughout the judgment, is that the bigger the employer, the harder that defence is going to be. The legislation already makes it very clear that disproportionate burden is assessed relative to the resources available to the given employer. There may be cases where the reasonable accommodation proposed by the employer is hugely expensive or almost unworkable, but because the employer is so large and has such vast resources available to it, when seen in the great scheme of things, that it will be difficult for that employer to show it's a disproportionate burden. Overall, however, you might say that looking at these three steps, nothing has changed all that much. And that is partially correct. The fundamental change within these three steps is that the extent to which an employer must consider reconfiguring the role for the employee 
to provide for reasonable accommodation is now even greater than we thought following the Court of Appeal judgment. This case is by no means over. It will have to go back to the Labour Court, as I say, and we'll update you when we get to that point. And finally, some of you might think we have brought back the weird and wonderful cases from the earlier episodes, but what I'm about to tell you is actually true. We were delighted to find out this week that we had come second in a list of top 10 employment law podcasts available on the internet. This is probably the first prize I've won since the competitive days of Miss Melia's Spelling League when I was in fifth class, so bear with me if I'm being slightly immodest in this. For those of you who've been following this podcast series since back in 2013, thank you very much for your support, and it is great to get this recognition. Thanks for listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email brian, that's B-R-Y-A-N, dot done at matheson.com. This podcast contains general information about Irish law. It is not intended to provide legal advice on any particular matter and is for general information purposes only. You should not act or refrain from acting on the basis of any material contained in this podcast without seeking the appropriate legal or other professional advice. Tune in next time for another Matheson Employment Law podcast. For further information, visit matheson.com.